We have a special treat this morning, and as our speaker, we have a man who is definitely a bright scholar and very well prepared, a man who has BA from University of Chicago, MDiv and THM from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and a PhD from Northwestern University. So we have a man who has answered the call but has prepared for that call without a doubt. He's a man who is well-liked by his students where he teaches. He's on the faculty of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and the students like him. He was voted Faculty of the Year, 2008 and 2011. And uh, I can attest to that. It's a reality. I was one of his students, and I definitely like him. Co-author of several writings, Following Jesus Without Dishonoring Your Parents. This is probably, if you want to jot down some good reading for yourself. Growing Healthy, Asian American Churches, Telling the Truth, Korean Americans and Their Religions, the side, This Side of Heaven, Race, Ethnicity, and Christian Faith, Honoring the Generations, and on, and I'm sure their list is longer than this. This is one interesting bit that I did not know about him. He was recognized as one of the 50 up-and-coming evangelical leaders under 40 by Christianity Today in 1996. How about that? That's definitely a great honor. But more than that, he's husband and a father to Pastor Peter and myself, a very good friend and a mentor, and to all of us, a brother in Jesus Christ. With you, I leave Dr. Peter Cha. Thank you, brother. Good morning, new community. It's certainly a privilege of mine to share God's message this morning with you. And as we turn to God this morning, would you join me in prayer and ask for God's blessings this morning? Our gracious God in heaven, as your children, beloved sons and daughters of yours, we continue this worship of worshiping your holy name, now gathering around your word of life, word that is powerful, transforming our lives. And now as we come to you, O Lord, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher and your spirit would prepare our hearts to receive your truth that would continually shape us to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bible, please open to today's passage, which comes at the end of Matthew chapter 7. So Matthew chapter 7, I would like to read from verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? 
Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. It was the summer of 1976 when I was in 11th grade when our family moved from Los Angeles to Philadelphia. Now, my uh, uh, mom and my five siblings, they took the airplane ride uh, and went there ahead. And now it was uh, responsibility of my father and myself, and I was the oldest of the six kids, to drive across the United States. I remember it was a very hot summer, uh, weather is something like what we will be experiencing this coming week, and it was a car without air conditioning, so it was just a long, hot road trip. But there was one thing that my dad and I were both looking forward to, and that is to make frequent stops at different places that we never visited before, and just enjoying the sights and taking pictures of those beautiful places. The problem we ran into, though, was that my father had already packed up his camera, the Canon camera, and sent it ahead with my family, so he gave me a simple mission to go out to Sears department store and get the cheapest camera that we can find. Now, some of you are old enough to remember this particular product. Mid-1970s, there was a Kodak Instamatic camera. It's a small, boxy thing. It's just simple, and all you do is it, you just push a button on the top, and it's supposed to capture the image in front of you. It had no lens to speak of, just very simple mechanical thing. So when my father asked me to read the instruction of that thing, because he had never used something like that, I looked at it and thinking, what's there to read? Just push the button on the top, and it'll take care of the rest. Well, we began the road trip, and I don't know if any of you had been to the southwestern part of our country, some just really hauntingly beautiful sites. Uh, we came across some giant cactus, and we took several shots. Uh, we went to a, a, came across a huge crater that was created by one of the earlier meteorites that fell thousands of years ago in Arizona. And of course, we had to go to Grand Canyon, and all these places that we visited with some marvelous haunting beauty, my dad and I took pictures with this new camera. We continued on, came to the Midwest. Well, it's just miles and miles and miles of a flat cornfield. <laughs> so we just drove through that part rather quickly. 
And then we came to、uh, the East Coast, the Appalachian Mountains. Some just really gorgeous mountain sites, and once again we took pictures. By the time we got to Philadelphia and reunited with our family, we had fully used up three rolls of films. We just took about up to 100 photos, and my father was so eager to share those images with the rest of the family. So asked me to go develop those films from Photoshop right away. So I did. I went and and took the films to the photo developers, and then they 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 developed them, and I brought them home. And all eight of us, after dinner one evening, were gathered, and my dad was just so eager to share with the rest of the family what the Grand Canyon looked like and the different parts of our country that we got to experience. But then, as we were passing the photos around, it was certain that something went wrong <laughs> because we did not have a single photos of those places that we were、uh, shooting at. But instead, what we had was a random pictures of sky, of some distant tourists running about, <laughs> parking lot, parked cars. And then every one of them had a human ear covering one part of it. <laughs> Now we were all trying to figure out what did exactly happen. And it was my younger brother who later became an engineer who sort of put the one and one together <laughs> and said, "You know what you guys did? You guys pointed the camera instead of forward, backward." <laughs> So whatever pictures we took were never ones that were in the front of us, but always the random shots of tourists, parked cars, and parking lots. You can only sense a sense of disappointment my father had, <laughs> all because we aimed at wrong focus throughout the journey. Now in today's passage. We come to encounter a group of individuals who also encountered disappointment, but of a different degree. They too had been on a long journey, and come to that place of encountering Christ on that judgment day, and their expectation was somehow that they would be not only acknowledged but greatly praised by Christ. And we just read this morning. For many of these individuals, that's not the expectation. Well, that may have been their expectation, but that's not what they encountered. Before we go further, let me locate today's passage in a larger discourse of Book of Matthew. Before Pastor Peter went on to、uh, sabbatical, he took us through the many weeks of preaching on Sermon on the Mount. Starting with Matthew five, ending with Matthew seven, and we learn in that preaching, by hearing that preaching, the Sermon on the Mount is essentially Christ teaching and preaching for His followers to know what it means to be kingdom citizens, 
to embrace certain values and practices as a distinct community of now followers of Christ. You're no longer citizens of this kingdom on earth. Instead, now you are citizens of God's kingdom because you are my followers and my disciples. And as such, you no longer are now being shaped by these values, but these. And you are no longer to practice these things, but this instead. And in doing so, he covered very wide range of issues. To recall, remember Jesus talked about how as his followers, we are to relate to our material possessions, our finance. We also learned how Jesus is now mandating his followers have this different kind of relationship with people around us, how we are to relate to the poor, how we are relate to even our enemies, right? And then Jesus also got into some very intimate topics like sexuality, like marriage and divorce. And Pastor Peter took us through those preachings. Today's passage comes at the very end of that Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus wraps it all up. This is where Jesus brings a conclusion to this amazing preaching he had done from Matthew 5 to 7. And basically, to sum it up, Jesus says, who are indeed my genuine followers? Who are my genuine followers? That's what Jesus is addressing in this passage. But before we go on to that passage, let me by first take you through this question. Who is not then a genuine follower of Christ? And today's passage points out a few things. First, let me take you back to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says with our lips, Lord, Lord, will necessarily be a genuine follower of Christ. Now, in today's world, as it was in the early church days, it is very important that we publicly announce and acknowledge and profess that Christ is my Lord and I am his follower, right? That profession without lips is an important part of our discipleship. In fact, we live in today in North America, according to Gallup poll and others, somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of the population in our land profess with their lips that they are born-again Christians. But then some of the things that church leaders point out is this. If indeed 30 or 40 percent of our entire national population are believing Christians, how is it and why is it the church's ability to influence our surrounding communities and society with teachings of Christ is so anemic and in some ways is diminishing? And that is the question that today's passage is bringing up. Just because we say with our lips, I am a Christ follower, I am a Bible-believing Christian, does not necessarily make it by itself 
you and I a genuine follower of Christ. It takes more than that. Second, notice, today's passage says that these individuals that we meet in today's passage come to Christ on that day and correctly identifies Jesus as the Lord. Lord, Lord. They're not atheists. They're not Muslims. They're not Jehovah's Witness followers. These folks had the right knowledge. If you will, right biblical knowledge. And yet, that was not enough. Now, as I was introduced, I currently teach at a seminary, which holds a very, very high view of scriptures. So we emphasize greatly to our students how important it is for our Christian life, having a right biblical knowledge, right theology, how that is an important foundation of our Christian life and Christian ministry. But having said that, right knowledge by themselves alone do not make you and I a genuine follower of Christ. As we know, Satan himself acknowledged and know that Christ is son of living God. But Satan certainly is not a follower of Christ. Third, notice that these individuals who came to Christ's throne that day declared and shouted out, Lord, Lord. Now, in a Bible, when same word gets repeated more than once, it's communicating a sense of emotional enthusiasm and passion. Right? They did not just come up and say, Lord, in a very descriptive way. These individuals are incredibly happy to see Jesus. Lord, Lord. They had this emotional affection toward and kind of excitement about seeing this resurrected Christ. But that apparently was not enough by itself. Now, Christianity, as you know, or biblical Christianity, ultimately it's about relationship. Our relationship with our God, our relationship with our resurrected Christ, it's a personal relationship. And often Bible uses a very rich relational picture, metaphor, to talk about this Christian faith we have. Father and son and daughter, the parent-child relationship. And also Bible uses the bride and groom, that relationship. That our relationship with God has to involve the sense of emotional attachment, love, loyalty, affection, that is a very important component of our faith in Christ. And yet, today's passage seems to point out that by itself is not enough. Moving on to the next, look at these individuals, particularly verses 22 on. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? 
Wow. These individuals had some spectacular things for God. Prophesying in Christ's name. Driving out demons. Performing many miracles. These were not just average churchgoers. And actually, this is a, somewhat of a scary thing for those of us who are in full-time ministry. Because we can often come to this sense that because I have served God faithfully or best I can, because I've seen fruits of, in my ministry, I therefore must be. But these individuals had that as well. And then on that judgment day, they received not commendation, but rather stern rebuke. Doing fruitful ministry in the name of Christ by itself does not make you and I a genuine follower of Christ. So then this begs the question, after going through the whole Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus explained what is a kingdom life about? How does Jesus wrap up that sermon in terms of this indeed is the mark of a genuine follower of me? And he gives response to that question on verse 21 and verse 24. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then verse 24, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. A marker, a critical marker that defines who we are as kingdom citizens, who we are as a followers of Jesus, is how we are responding to Christ's words, Christ's voice, Christ's command for us. Who is Jesus Christ in our life today? I wonder how you will ask, answer that question. Who is Jesus Christ? Is a simple question that many of you would answer. He is a son of living God, my Savior, who died on the cross for me. But the question is, who is Jesus Christ in your life today? I wonder how you might answer that question. How I might answer that question. After my seminary training, for seven years, I served with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, working in college campus ministries. First three years in Indiana, and then four years in the city of Chicago. During my, those early years of staff ministry, I had a wonderful, wise mentor under whom I learned a lot about ministry. His name was Don, and this is one of the things Don told me. Peter, when you go to college campus, you will encounter many, many college students who grew up in the church. And they know a lot about the Bible, a lot about something about Christian uh, beliefs and faith. However, he said, broadly speaking, from his 40 years of ministry in campus, there are three 
types of relationships church-going college students have with Christ. And this is how he categorized it. First, there are those who relate to Christ as if he were merely a guest in one's life. Who is a guest? Guest is someone that you treat with respect and kindness. But then guest is also someone who owns nothing in your house. And also, guest, by definition, is with you only temporarily. You know, there's Italian proverbs that go something like, guest is like a fish. After three days, he stinks. <laughs> right? A guest cannot overstay. And what Don was telling me was that there are many college young people who grew up in a church who basically developed a habit of relating to Christ as if he were merely a guest. Jesus is someone who is with you in some ways in your life, let's say on Sundays, because you go to church, you worship God, but then rest of the week, he's absent. And somehow implicitly you think that everything that I am, everything I do, everything I own is all mine. And he owns nothing. Right? And that was Don's way of describing a, one type of relationship with Christ. And then secondly, he pointed out, and there are some college students who relate to Christ as if he were merely a roommate. Now, who is a roommate, especially in a college situation or, or if you're a young single living with roommates, apartment mates? It's a person with whom you conveniently work out some kind of arrangement. This is my side of the room, my bed, my dresser, my desk, my closet, and I take care of these things. It's none of your business about what happens here. And then these things, these are yours, right? It's a type of a negotiation. And then how to live together peacefully. And what Don was getting at is that there are some Christians who also get into this mindset of negotiation with Christ. Jesus, I definitely need your help with my spiritual life. I give it to you. Jesus, I could really use your help in your provision for me. Tuition is due on this day, right? <laughs> I haven't studied all along in my whole semester, but I so desperately need for your help on this final exam. Right? All these ways that we cannot negotiate with Christ, please help me with this X, Y, Z. However, when it comes to this arena of my life, this area of my life, hands off. It's mine and mine alone, and you have no business here. And one of the things that Don pointed out 
to me, and I greatly benefited from this, my own personal journey of faith, as well as the way I did my campus ministry with the students. Those students who grew up in a church who relate to Christ as if he were merely a guest or roommate cannot have a growing, deepening faith in their relationship with Christ. They have already made an arrangement in such a way that Jesus is something far less than what Scripture teaches us. Nowhere in the Bible, Jesus is referred to as a guest or roommate. In fact, today's passage points out, and throughout the New Testament passages, he is acknowledged as the Lord of the universe, the resurrected Savior of ours, is the Lord of the universe, and as long as you and I live in that part of the universe, he is also the Lord of our lives. We don't make him Lord in our life. He is already so. It's just we need to wake up to that reality and be able to bring our lives under his lordship. Why is it so hard for us to acknowledge that reality and submit to it? Part of it is our human nature. Oh, we so desperately want to accept Jesus the Savior because I do want to have that security of going to heaven after I die. So we say yes to Jesus the Savior. But the part about Christ the Lord, uh, that one is costly. But how do you say yes to Jesus the Savior and no to Christ the Lord? How do you separate the work that he has done on the cross and who he is today? I mean, you cannot tell me if you invite me to come to your home for dinner and I show up and ring the bell, and you cannot say to me, Peter, come in, but Cha, stay out. Right? And yet, this is a kind of game that often we are up to play, partly because there is a certain sense of fear about yielding our life to anyone else but me because we cannot fully trust that person's intention for me and his ability to do the best. But the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us he loved us so much and enough that he was willing to give up his life on a cross on our behalf. How much more is he wanting to see that we be able to live out our Christian life in such a way that it would not only bring glory to God, but what would enable us to be the kind of person that he has created us to be. And as you know, we live in a world where so many competing voices that wants our attention, wants our loyalty, wants our obedience. And often one way to talk about how do we be the kind of follower that today's passage talks about is whose voice 
which voice do we listen to and say yes to? And all of us come from different places, different family backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. And depending on your background, certain voices have such a volume, such a dominance over you. So for me, coming from an Asian background, in my culture, the voice that so dominates us from very early on is our parents' voice. In an Asian culture, particularly fathers, are like gods. They can demand absolute obedience because all of our cultural teaching says that is not only allowable, but that's admirable. So I was third year in college when I began to sense God's call to go into full-time ministry. Now, my father is a pastor, so I'm one of those pastor's kids. And I grew up watching how hard it was for our family and for my father doing this ministry. My father was a church planter, which meant every three years or so we moved around. And his particular gift was going to a new area, plant a new church, and when it grows to about 200, 250, he'll be going somewhere else to plant another church. Now, which meant all his life, he never passed through the large church. Which meant for us, unusually large family of six kids, we were always poor. My father often had a second job in the evening working as a janitor to supplement the income for the family. So during the daytime, he was a pastor. Evening time, he was cleaning hospitals and office buildings. And I grew up watching that. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, God, please, please, I'll do anything. (laughs) But don't call me into ministry. But it was the third year when I sensed God's call to ministry. And that surprised me. After praying through a period of time, I contacted my mom and dad. I am having this beginning, uh, the deepening sense that God is calling me to ministry. Surprisingly, I didn't get much response from my dad for a long time, for about a month. I thought he would be very happy that his firstborn son will follow his footsteps and go into ministry. Why am I not hearing anything from my dad? So I picked up the phone and called him. And this is what my father said. You know, when God gave me many children, I promised God that I will offer one of my children to go into full-time ministry, but it's not you. Wow, a tremendous power of a parent. That's something only an Asian parent can say. (laughs) And then he says something like this. You know, I served in many small churches, immigrant churches, that did not have a pension system for their pastor. I have no savings for retirement. In fact, you are my retirement plan (laughs) as a firstborn son, and I want you to find a career that would have a financial promise and security so that you could take care of your mom and dad 
when we retire. And by the way, you have a five younger brothers and sisters below you, and you need to quickly get that kind of job so that you can help us financing your younger siblings' college education. That's why you cannot be going into ministry. Now, those of you who come from background outside of Asia uh, culture, this may sound like a total wow. Can fathers do that to their kid? Especially pastors? Well, see, in my culture, that makes total sense. The problem here was that voice that was culturally so acceptable and makes total sense was going at odds with what Christ was calling me to do. Initially, when I got that response from my dad, I thought, this is good. (laughs) My father is a pastor. He's a godly man. He's telling me not to go into ministry. Boy, I dodged that bullet. (laughs) But as I prayed about it more and more, the sense of call to this ministry deepened, and I had to finally go back to my dad and say, Dad, I heard you. I know why you have asked me to think of, rethink about this, but as I pray more and more about this, I cannot escape the sense that Christ is calling me to this pathway. After a period of time, he also came around and gave me a permission and blessing to go to seminary, but I know that was not easy for him either because for both of us, it meant we need to place our full trust in Christ for his provision for the family. Brothers and sisters, following Christ and being obedient to him gets really messy and sometimes requires wisdom and courage, not because the choice before you is black and white, total evil and total good, But there are many competing voices that shout at you that are trying to get your attention and your sense of loyalty and commitment that are not necessarily bad. In fact, in a particular culture, that would be even seen as a good thing. How do we hear Christ? How do we say yes to his leading and his directing? In the end, it comes down to, can I trust this Christ if I yield my life to him? Can I trust that this person, Christ, will not use and abuse me? Especially when he's calling me to go toward the pathway that is narrow and only few have traveled. Let me end the message by sharing with you this wonderful quote from one of Henry Nouwen's book called Return of the Prodigal Son. And in that, uh, in this quote, I don't know if it's going to be up up there, but let me read it for you because this is where Henry Nouwen also talks about competing voices, seductive voices that try to shape us 
and our heart and mind each day and how it is so important for us to have that ability to hear and respond to the voice of Christ. Let me read. There are many voices, voices that are loud, full of promises, and very seductive. These voices say, go out and prove that you are worth something. They want me to prove to myself and to others that I am worth being loved. And they keep pushing me to do everything possible to gain acceptance. Almost from the moment I had ears to hear, I heard those voices, and they have stayed with me ever since. They have come to me through my parents, my friends, my teachers, and my colleagues. But as long as I remain in touch with the voice that calls me the beloved, the voice of our Savior, these voices are quite harmless. But when I forget that voice of the first unconditional love, then these voices can easily start dominating my life. It is a part of reality we live in that we are immersed every day in those settings where we hear different voices and often competing voices. The question is not how to shut those voices out, but which voice becomes the most dominant in our life? Is that the word and the voice of our resurrected Lord and Savior? Then as Henry Noun points out, all these other voices become quite harmless. As I look in this uh, sanctuary this morning, most of you are in your 20s, 30s, where you are shaping the foundation of your adult life. Some of the decisions you are making today, next week, this semester, would have a lifelong consequences. So in many ways, you are building a house for your lifelong vocation of ministry and life. And today's passage challenges us on what are you building your house? Is it a rock, solid foundation? Is it a sand? Whose voice is shaping you? Whose voice is laying that foundation? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge and confess that you are the Lord of the universe and indeed you are the Lord of our lives as well. And at the same time, we confess, O oh Lord, so easily it is our reality that we do not live up to that truth. And because of our lack of trust in you or because of our own self-absorption, or perhaps because we are paying so much attention to other competing voices, whether they are a voice of our parents, our employers, our girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever that might be, that our hearts and lives have crowded you out 
that we're not hearing you, O Lord. If that is the situation, we pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to make that space in our lives where we can continually hear your voice that calls us your beloved and that provides leading and guidance for us that we might be able to build our house on the rock, on the solid ground, and not on the shifting sand. I pray especially for my younger brothers and sisters here who are making their future plans, who are building the foundations of their life, that your Lordship be so clear in how they think, how they feel, and how they respond. So that on that day, when we encounter you on the judgment seat, when we run up to you and say, Lord and Lord, that we would not be receiving your rebuke as individuals in this passage, but we would be embraced by your Lord and hear your word that tells us, you're my beloved. You have been my faithful servant. And I pray that blessings for all my brothers and sisters in this household today. And we pray all this in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Is now our prayer, O oh God, that this lovely song, beautiful song we just sang with our lips, will be part of our stories and our life throughout this week. That our life would honor you because you are our Savior King. And that we would learn to yield more and more areas of our lives to you, O oh Lord. And that you would make something beautiful, something transformative out of those things. That our life and our character would reflect the character of our Savior and our Savior King. Now go with us, O Lord, and the amazing, amazing grace of our Christ, risen Lord, and the love of our Father above, and the power and the fellowship of our Holy Spirit would be with us throughout this week. Amen.